From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Both chambers of Congress are back in Washington after the August recess, and it has already been a banner week for political theater with Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee. With me to discuss whether or not this is resonating with the public or may have uh, an effect on the midterm elections is Leah Askaranam. She is the Insight Elections reporter and analyst and works with our colleague Nathan Gonzalez and knows probably more about Senate and House races than almost anyone else I know. Leah, welcome to Political oh, Theater. I try. Thank you. <laughs> so we've seen uh, quite a bit of, uh, you know, not to belabor the point, but po- quite a bit of political theater so far in just the first two days of Kavanaugh's hearings. Uh, that There have been a lot of protesters that have disrupted the committee hearing. We have a short clip of Senator Orrin Hatch, the Utah Republican who's the most senior senator uh, on the Republican side, praising Kavanaugh and being interrupted in his reaction. He's written more than 300 opinions. His opinions span nearly 5,000 pages in length. But what a re- what's remarkable about Judge Kavanaugh's judicial record is not just its length, but its depth and its quality. Judge Kavanaugh has been a true thought leader in passing up the opportunity to confirm a great jurist, but would also undermine civility in politics twice over. Now, Mr. Mr. Chairman, I don't know that the committee should have to put up with this type of insolence that's going on in in this room today. And frankly, uh, these people are so out of line, they shouldn't even be allowed in the doggone room. So that was Hatch. Uh, And the Democrats have also coordinated some messaging and tried to make things as uncomfortable as possible for their Republican colleagues. We see this unfolding live on television or live streaming, you know, on our laptops and so forth. But, you know, what our interest here, Leah, is, is is this getting through to the voters? Is this going to have any kind of effect on the midterms? Let's start with the people who are running for re-election this year who are on the Judiciary Committee. Right. So, I mean, in terms of the impact on the 2018 midterms, the number of senators on the Judiciary Committee who are up for re-election this year is, is pretty small. So we have Senator Klobuchar from uh, Minnesota, Senator Feinstein from California, uh, and then on the Republican side, you have Senator Ted Cruz. The only other senator who would be up for re-election is Jeff Flake from Arizona, who is not running. Most of those candidates are pretty safe this year. Um, So what you'll most likely see is, especially from Senator Klobuchar, maybe some more posturing for 2020. The one who... Uh, That's right. So Amy Klobuchar, as you said, she's the senior senator from Minnesota, and she is is sort of you know included in a lot of conversations about being a possible presidential candidate herself. Right. Her approval ratings have generally pulled through the roof in Minnesota. So she's on the long, long list of uh, Democrats who are being talked about as potential 2020 contenders. Now, before before we get to Senator Feinstein, uh, th- there are a couple of other presidential uh, possible, not you know, candidates on the Democratic side, and they made uh, you know a, a decent amount of noise and and sort of jo- you know jostling back and forth with the committee's chairman Chuck Grassley. Cory Booker, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Democrat from New Jersey, and Kamala Harris, uh, the Democrat from California. There's a great picture of the two of them sitting next to each other. 
they don't have to run for re-election this year. So this is kind of all about like posturing and putting themselves in for, you know, 2020 consideration. Right. right. And even if they were up for re-election this year, they're from states where running to the left is probably not going to hurt them. Um, their biggest challenge would be, you know, a primary challenge in New Jersey, for example, from a, a candidate running on the left. So, I mean, yeah, I think with especially those two candidates, you're seeing some political posturing for the future, whether that be a reelection campaign or it's seeking higher office like the presidency. And so back to Feinstein now. She is the she's the ranking member, the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, she has been around since 1992. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, you know, respected, you know, by among her colleagues on both sides of the aisle. And she is running uh, in, again, in this sort of crazy, uh, the jungle, primary jungle election uh, system in California, where she faced off uh, against primarily Democrats uh, mm-hmm. in, in the primary. And now she faces another Democrat, Kevin DeLeon, who's a state senator in, in November. Now, she won pretty easily the primary. There was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't particularly close, but the top two advanced to the general election. What is what's going on with her as she positions and and tries to kind of make sure that she doesn't uh, make any big mistakes going into November so she can, you know, kind of close out her reelection? Right. I mean, DeLeon has a pretty slim chance at this point of actually ousting the incumbent senator Um, in terms of the kind of priority list of of targets throughout the country. Democrats are just not that focused on California, considering they're playing defense in places like West Virginia and North Dakota. Uh, But that doesn't mean that DeLeon can't use those hearings as a kind of part of his campaign war chest. And we've we've already seen him on Twitter uh, kind of criticizing Feinstein for not going far enough in her criticism of uh, Kavanaugh. And we can expect as he's kind of trying to veer to the left. That's the only lane that will help him win a general election in California. We can expect him to continue to use clips just as part of his overall campaign. We have an example of Feinstein questioning Kavanaugh about whether a sitting president can be subpoenaed. It's kind of an example of what you're talking about, of her showing you know, that she can be a, a tough questioner, perhaps. Now, very quickly, let me just ask you this. Can a sitting president be required to respond to a subpoena? So that's a a hypothetical question about uh, what would be uh, an elaboration or a difference from U.S. v. Nixon's precise holding. And and I think going with the Justice Ginsburg principle, which is really not the Justice Ginsburg alone principle, it's everyone's principle uh, on the current Supreme Court. And as a matter of uh, the canons of judicial independence, I can't give you an answer on that hypothetical question. So you can't give me an answer on whether a president has to respond to a subpoena from a court of law? As my, uh, there's, my understanding is that you're asking me to give my view on a potential hypothetical and now let's talk about Ted Cruz on the on the Republican side. This is a, a race that wasn't on a ton of people's radars uh, until very recently. Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic congressman from El Paso, has uh, at, at the very minimum uh, turned it into a, a very meme-heavy race and attracted a lot of money and a lot of attention for the way he's running. He's going to every county in Texas. He's live streaming everything on Facebook. Uh, the, the, it, it seems like a sort of a homegrown uh, campaign, and he's attracted a lot of, of followers and a lot of attention. 
So crews, we noticed toward the end of August, started going back to Texas a little bit more often, skipping some votes. So it's, it's evident that the senator is at least mildly concerned about it. What have we seen from Cruz, if anything? Have, have we seen a more aggressive Ted Cruz? I mean, he's a fairly aggressive guy to begin with. Right. I haven't really noticed a change in his tone. I think people generally know where Ted Cruz stands on the issues and who he is. As you know, a major national figure, former presidential nominee, I think we kind of already know what his style is going to, going to be and how he would approach something like a Supreme Court hearing. Where we could see an effect is kind of out of his hands is if uh, voters, Republican voters throughout the country, but especially in places like Texas, feel galvanized to support a Republican senator, even if they have some misgivings about the president. I mean, the Supreme Court vacancy kind of might serve as a reminder for Republican voters why they need to show up. They're not just voting for the the president's pick, but they're voting for conservative values. So that could help Ted Cruz in the end, but I don't think it's actually affecting the way he conducts himself. He's he's pretty reliable. So before we talk about some of the uh, the other competitive races that we're following in the Senate, I just wanted to make a note that we're we we are going to focus just on the Senate in this podcast because the House is is does have its own dynamic. For one, it doesn't have any formal role in the confirmation of, of a Supreme Court justice. And as uh, as our as our friend Nathan uh, s- said, uh, uh, as we were talking to him earlier about this kind of running by a, a, a couple of things, he said it would be hard to imagine giving uh, Democrats any more reason to vote. They seem fairly fired up in the midterm dynamic at this point. So it's it's a I mean I think it's okay to focus on the Senate for the purposes here we got here. Yeah, I, th- I think one thing that's kind of interesting to look at is the fact that so far most of the protesters who have been kicked out of the hearings have been women. Mm-hmm. So you have heard um, probably if you've been following the midterms about this surge in enthusiasm from suburban women that could help uh, Democrats regain the majority. That's something to kind of look at here. But yeah, I think in terms of actual House races, the effect of the Supreme Court nomination is more a question about turnout and how that affects turnout rather than how individual House candidates handle the situation and handle their messaging. Right. So back to the Senate. Uh, the, most, the, the Democrats are very much on the defensive. There are 10 Democrats running for re-election in states that President Donald Trump won in 2016. Five of them are in fairly deep red or heavily Republican states, West Virginia, Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota, and, and Montana. So let, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Our, our, our friend Bridget Bowman, a Roll Call senior political reporter, was in Missouri recently, and she said that Josh Hawley, who's the state attorney general, uh, has, has been making this very much an issue in his race. And then mm-hmm. also conversely, Claire McCaskill, the Democratic incumbent, has admitted in a in a conference call and then, uh, you know, to, to reporters that this is a loser of an issue for her, that mm-hmm. like half of the people she talks to want her to vote no against Kavanaugh and the other half want her to vote yes. So she's just in this situation where it's YOLO. <laughs> you know, right. Whatever. No, and it's such a tough question for these Democratic incumbents running in Trump states. In the past, I mean, a, a handful of them voted against uh, Neil Gorsuch for confirmation. But for the most part, they cited issues that weren't necessarily social issues. So Mm -hmm. they cited dark money or corporate interests. Um, And so the question is, is it authentic and believable if they do that again? Mm -hmm. Or will voters think that they're, you know, trying to hide the fact that they're a rubber stamp for the Democratic Party? Um, And so I don't know how... 
I don't know how voters are going to respond to that question. And I don't think the candidates know yet either. And, we, and we've gotten some indications that the three Democrats uh, who are in Joe Donnelly in Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, all of whom are, you know, again, they're running for reelection in very Republican places. They all voted for Gorsuch, Donald Trump's first uh, nominee to the Supreme Court. And he was confirmed. Uh, he was he would have been confirmed without Democratic support, but they voted for him uh, because they felt that was the right thing for them and their constituents, uh, or or whatever the calculation right. may have been. It looks like they they are uh, they are leaning towards supporting Kavanaugh, at least from some of the public positions that they've taken. They were among the first Democrats to meet with him. Is is anything changing there? I mean, the, it, it, is is it as much of an issue in those states as it is in in other places or in Missouri? I mean, it depends on who you ask. Democrats still maintain that the biggest issue across the board is health care, and then after that, the economy, and then possibly education, but that might be a little bit more with governor's races. That said, a lot of these candidates are going to try to push their races into a partisan choice. So a lot of candidates, or a lot of Republican candidates especially, who are running in states where, you know, a, Repub- a Democrat hasn't won in statewide office for years, want voters to go to the polling booths thinking, I'm going to make a partisan decision. I'm supporting a conservative or over a liberal. So in that sense, Republicans might want to take up the issue of the Supreme Court to kind of remind voters of their partisan homes um, and whether they want to abandon those. Arguably the most vulnerable Senate Democrat is Heidi Heitkamp. And mm-hmm. inside elections, you have moved that into the uh, tilt Republican, tilt Republican yeah. for Representative Kevin Kramer, the, mm-hmm. the state's at-large congressman, a Republican. The others, uh, Missouri and, and Indiana, are are toss-ups. Mm-hmm. West Virginia is tilt Democrat, is tilt Democrat, and then Montana, where John Tester is running against Matt Rosendale, the state auditor. That's a tilt, tilt uh, Democrat. Tilt. It'll be interesting if the. It seems like you're you're saying that the Democrats are trying to keep the, the focus on more on broader issues like like health care, and the Republicans you know, are in the midst of reminding their heavily Republican states that they're Republicans, they wanted to make it this red versus blue choice. Exactly. I mean, you're seeing Democratic incumbents release kind of the same campaign ad over and over where they look into the camera and say, I do not work for a party. I do not work for the president. I work for North Dakota or Montana or Florida, um, any of those competitive states. Democrats are trying to kind of get out of those partisan kind of messaging standpoints, and Republicans are trying to kind of go all in. Well, Leah, we've got a little over two months to go until Election Day. Thank you very much for for lending your insight. It's going to be kind of a, it's going to be an interesting two months. Yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. And for more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at RollCall. Thank you for listening.